mind, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, the scripture for today is out of Judges 3, 7 through 31. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenath, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites, and went, at, went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back to the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay, on their, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped from Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him, 
After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. God is so dynamic and, um, and, and vast, God. Lord, please teach us, God, through this, this, um, through this passage, God. Lord, allow the Spirit to work in our lives, and I pray that each one of us, God, would, um, would also allow the Spirit, God, to, to teach us and um, just reach our hearts, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing to look at the Old Testament book of Judges, and I'm sure as you heard that story, <laughs> you're wondering, I wonder what we're going to hear today. <laughs> well, I hope you'll get some questions answered here as to why this is in the Bible, because it's here for a reason. Uh, we're looking at chapter 3, as we just heard read, beginning of verse 7. Uh, it's, this is one of first of several sad cycles during this time in Israel's history, during this time of the judges, when the judges ruled, before the kings, but during the judges' rule. And all the cycles look basically the same, just the one we just heard today. All these cycles begin with the idolatrous sins of the Jews when they're worshiping the Baals, these tribal gods from other peoples around them. That's followed by God disciplining them for their sin by giving them over to the oppression of these Canaanite people around them who bully them. Next, we see typically after many years of oppression, the Jews finally cry out to God for help, and in response to their cry, when they turn back to him, God sends a judge to them to deliver them. And then it repeats over and over and over through this book about seven times. From the oppression of the pagan tribes who bully them. That's a big piece of today's lesson as well. In chapter 3, what he does is he introduces the first three judges who delivered Israel from these Canaanites. We're going to talk about two because they're the, the big deal. The tragic story of the Jews and why this is a big deal is that God sent them into the promised land to show that these other nations what it was like for a nation to live under God's rule, to live with Yahweh as their king. Okay? But instead of revealing the glory of God as a nation by submitting to his rule, receiving his blessing, they instead became like the idol worshipers around them they were sent to influence. The sad storyline of this book is all too relevant for a contemporary church, right? Likewise, we are sent to radiate God's glory among the nations and around people who are not like us to bear witness to what it is to have God as your father and your king. But we can be like the Israelites at times, so easily being drawn into the influence of the people around us that we're sent to influence. Okay? Now, as Brian read the story, you doubtless caught the earthy tone of it. And if you found yourself snickering at parts, especially during the story of King Eglon, the king of Moab, that's entirely appropriate because the story is intended by the author to evoke laughter because God is mocking the frailty and the stupidity or the dullness of these Moabites represented by their king. Many of the more graphic details of the story need to be elaborated on because, not because we have any desire for purient details, but because they're intended to communicate something important. They're not just to make for a colorful story. So we need to unpack some of those if we're going to understand what the author is trying to say to us. 
This is not intended to offend anyone's sensitivities, but this message is rated PG because this text is a PG text. So you're certainly free to take out your young children if you feel like, you know, you don't want them to hear any more further explanation of these somewhat earthy parts, okay? Again, not vulgarity, but it is reality and will certainly not be more graphic than a correct understanding of the author's meaning is required, okay? The scriptures are transparent about the creatureliness, if I can use that word, of being a fallen human. As a result, the stories, especially in the Old Testament, can be a bit on the earthy side. It says in verse 8, God's anger is kindled at his people for their idolatry. And it says he, meaning God, God sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. Okay? The author wants us to clearly see that the defeat and oppression of Israel here was authored by God as he disciplined them through these pagan peoples in an attempt to get them to turn back to him. God was in charge of this, okay? After a period of eight years of oppression under this first pagan king in the first story and 18 years of oppression by the Moabites in the second part of the story under, under Ehud, the people of God cry out for deliverance, okay? That's pretty slow to turn back. These were a fairly Canaanized group of people for him to take that long under oppression to finally turn back to God and say, help, okay? Now, part of what the author wants us to see in this section of Judges is the similarities and the differences between these two judges. There are some striking differences between these two that we'll see that teach us some pretty important truths about what it is to love God. But first, let's look at the similarities. There aren't many. They're both men. They're both Jews. They were both raised up by God to deliver his people from the impressive enslavement, enslavement of the Canaanites, and they were both skillful warriors and leaders. That's about where the similarities end. There's a whole lot more differences than there are similarities, but you have to know how to read Hebrew narrative to see it. And the, the trust is that you're learning how to read Hebrew narrative as we go through Judges. Okay? The author holds Judges, the first judge, as Othniel. And Othniel is held up as the model judge. Of all the judges, Othniel is the model. He's the archetype judge. Okay? Even though this story is one of the shorter ones, every other judge stands in his shadow. Okay? Though we know very little about him, what the author does say and what he chooses not to say are very powerful words of affirmation for this judge. Let's take a look at it. First of all, we know he's a war hero, okay? Othniel's first mention in Scripture is not here in this chapter. It's in chapter 1. And the story of that is, you may recall, the tribe of Judah is advancing against the Canaanites, okay? And they come to a town called Deber. Caleb, the leader of Judah, offers his daughter in marriage to the man who will conquer this city. Othniel, same Othniel, Caleb's nephew, takes up the challenge, captures the city, and marries Caleb's daughter, which is his first cousin, if you're keeping track. Happened a lot. The author wants us to see that Othniel is a man with battle-tested leadership and military prowess. That's in chapter 1. He also comes from one of the most distinguished and godly families in all of Israel, from the line of Caleb. Caleb was, as you recall, one of the two original spies, Joshua the other, who actually survived the promised land, or survived the wilderness, and made it into the promised land. 
So the author wants us to know that Othniel comes from a family who has a uniquely sterling spiritual heritage, okay? He also mentions that this first judge is from the tribe of Judah, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Judah was the predominant and most devoted tribe by far. So of the seven judges portrayed in the book, only Othniel comes from Judah. Now that detail is not just thrown in. The author is making a larger point about the character of this judge, that his character is consistent with the higher level of commitment to the Lord that was manifest in the tribe of Judah. That's his point. We know from the story of Othniel that he is a Holy Spirit-empowered man. In verse 10, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now, that's not unique to Othniel. It says the same thing to Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. The big difference between those judges and Othniel is there is nothing negative written about Othniel. And when you read the stories of Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, if you know what you're looking for, there is a huge contrast because there is a lot of negative things written in the stories of those three judges. Okay? It's a big difference, and we want to see that. Another important truth here regarding Othniel is, as we'll see, the progression of the book of Judges reveals a consistent downward spiral as the years go by. And the judges become increasingly worse, increasingly less faithful to God. Othniel is at the front of the line, so he is at the high watermark of all the judges when there's still a slight remnant of faithfulness within Israel. So that's when he lives, when there's a remnant of spiritual health in the country, and he represents that as a judge. Finally, Othniel distinguishes himself because of all the various foes in the book of Judges that Israel has to beat back. The enemy that God uses Othniel to defeat is by far the most impressive. Okay? Second half of verse 10, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. We're not given the details of the victory, but we do know that Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia was by far the largest of the foreign oppressors. Okay? The other re people groups that were around them that gave Israel all the trouble, one scholar puts it this way. He calls it the Canaanites city-states, the recently arrived Philistines, the migratory Midianites, or the emerging nations of Moab and Ammon. Of all of those, Mesopotamia is by far the most powerful. And it's important for us to know that Mesopotamia was located well outside of this region. Okay? That means that for them to be reaching out and conquering nations in this faraway region of Canaan indicate this is not simply a local bully who's beating up on their neighbor. This was a significant regional military power. And God uses Othniel to beat back this mighty emperor. Of all of that conspires to, to communicate that Othniel represents the apex, the zenith, the height of all the judges that are to follow. He's the best. He's the most faithful. He has no black marks against him. Unlike every other judge, he stands uniquely as the model judge. Now let's contrast by looking at this Ehud. Ehud was not from Judah. He was from Benjamin. And if Judah was the healthiest of the 12 tribes, Benjamin is consistently pictured in Judges and really through much of the Old Testament as one of the least healthy and most troublesome. 
If you wanted to go back later on in the book of Judges to chapters 19 and 21, there are some grisly stories. Can't wait to get there. And it represents just about the absolute low point spiritually for the people of the, of the Jews in the Old Testament. And at the center of all of those stories are the tragic tales that detail what is at the middle of it, and it's the sins of the Benjamites from the tribe of Benjamin. So as we'll see, their sins are so grievous, in this case, it prompts the other Jewish tribes, with God's help, to actually make war against their fellow Jews, the people of Benjamin, and in doing so, they kill a lot of them, a lot of men. And the result is that the number of men in Benjamin is drastically reduced, and the other tribes swear that they will not give their daughters in marriage to the remaining men of Benjamin. This ought to give us some idea of what Benjamin is about, and it sets us up when we see that the first king is from Benjamin. That would be Saul, okay? That's the author's way of letting us know this guy's going to be bad news. David is from Judah. Not a coincidence. Okay. The result is that the number of men of Benjamin was dramatically reduced, and there was nobody to replace him, and I will go into, when we get there, you can read it ahead in 19 and 21, what was done to try to fix this problem, and it is one of the worst stories in the Old Testament. One reason why the author gives us his point of reference, that he's from Benjamin, is he's doing this to help us have a guide through which to interpret the rest of what Ehud did. Okay? We see Ehud's skill at war, and we see his prowess in verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, he's described as a left-handed man. Okay? That comment reveals far more than, than what may have been the dominant hand for Ehud. In chapter 20, verse 16, later on in the book, we read this of some of the fighting men in Benjamin. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Okay, now the Greek translation of the Hebrew captures the meaning of this phrase, left-handed, and it uses their word for ambidextrous. Okay? So to be left-handed, as he's describing it here, tells us that Ehud was able to fight equally well with both hands. And in much of the combat being hand-to-hand -hand combat, two strong arms and two strong hands is a great advantage. So as we'll see, Ehud was in an elite class as a warrior. He would have been the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the Delta Force or a Navy SEAL. And we'll see that as the story plays out. He's very skilled. Other qualities of this Ehud we can follow through the rest of the story. As we make our way through verses 18 to 23, it reads a bit like a spy novel. This Ehud, we find out, is on a mission of political assassination. And he's very good at his job. He has a masterful plan that required treachery, deception, careful planning, and flawless execution for it to work. And it worked. We see this first when he and his fellow Jews come to bring King Eglon, and they're bringing a payment of tribute. That's Mesopotamia's way of saying, we're bigger than you, so you're going to pay us every year for the favor of being bigger than you. It was a tribute, okay? It was very unfair. So they're bringing the, the, the payment to the king. And when they arrive at the king's place, we see in verse 18 that Ehud sends away these other Jews who'd come with him so that he could be alone and execute his plan. This was a one-man operation, and the text leads us to believe that Ehud had not informed his cohorts of his plan, and so he separates himself from them. 
In verse 19, he convinces the king, who we're told is a rather rotund fellow, that he has a secret message for him. And the king then hears, and and he requests all the other people leave the room so he can meet alone with him. That tells us an awful lot about the dullness of Eglon. Because basically what he's doing is he's placing himself in an unprotected situation in the presence of an enemy soldier. That's really stupid, okay? Uhud, however, somehow pulls off the deception. And then in a statement worthy of James Bond and loaded with irony, in verse 20, he says, I have a message from God for you. Okay, Ehud used this phrase, secret message, back in 19. And the reason that phrase is so fascinating is because the word that we translate message in the Hebrew is a very ambiguous word. It has many possible meanings. That word can mean thing or object or even experience. And because he's already told King Eglon in verse 19 that he has a secret, Eglon assumed from that that Ehud meant a message of some sort, which was also a common usage of this word. But when Ahub uses this word the second time in verse 20, he doubtless means something other than a message. And so he says, with great irony, I have something from God for you. Now, Ahud heard message, or I should say the king heard message. Ahud wasn't talking about a message. He lets the king have this thing from God right in the middle of his supersized belly. Okay? So the author portrays Ehud as a skilled warrior, and the way that he does that is mainly through his description of the choice of his weapon and the placement of his weapon. He tells us that the weapon was double-edged. Okay? That was unusual. Okay? It was crafted by Ehud himself, and the double edge on a knife obviously enables the weapon to either stab or cut, making it a lot more versatile. It was also a cubit in length. A cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger. That's a cubit. It's about 18 inches. This is a big knife. This is a crocodile Dundee type of knife, okay? This is a big weapon. And the point is not just anybody can wield a knife like that with any dexterity. Who could? Also, the placement of the weapon, that's also an important detail, because in the ancient Near East, this weapon was worn on the left thigh. But Ehud carries it under his clothing on his right thigh, because being ambidextrous, he could use either hand, and you pull it with your opposite hand. So the reason the author goes into these details about the assassination is not fundamentally because it's decisive in the battle against the Moabites. The reason for the detail here is so that we may see that Ehud was a skilled assassin, And we'll see why that's important for us to notice in a little bit. Notice that the murder is carried out with great efficiency and force, okay? No struggle, no noise, no crying out. This assassination is just the way the CIA or the MI5 or the Mossad would want it carried out. This this guy's good at what he does. Notice that after the murder, Ehud in some way locks the door behind him to give himself more time to get away. Also, as a sidebar, only to help explain the text, notice in verse 24 that the servants of the king, who don't know, obviously don't know anything about this plot, assume that when the king is locked the doors, that he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. Okay, think about that one. Why would you assume that the king is going to the bathroom when the last you saw of him, he was meeting alone with an enemy envoy? Okay? One reason is found in verse 22, which is why this detail is placed here. 
It graphically describes the stab wound and the result of it. It translates in the NIV as the dung came out. Okay? The probable reason the guards make the normally unreasonable assumption that the king, who is alone in the presence of an enemy envoy, is going to the bathroom is because their olfactory senses told them that. That's why the author includes this grisly detail about the dung coming out. You had no idea what you were in for this morning. <laughs> so the guard mistakes that familiar odor for a royal potty break. And this bit of deception, although we don't know whether it was intended by Ehud, again, shows us that the author is taking great pains to show us that Ehud is a very formidable person. You don't want to meet Ehud in the back of an alley. He's a good assassin. After the assassination and his successful getaway, we see his leadership skills. He musters this army by blowing a trumpet, and the men come down from the hills like locusts. He goes to a strategic location at the ford of the Jordan that leads to Moab. Okay? Now that's the place where all the enemy troops would be coming from. So what this move does is it cuts off the enemy forces from retreating back to their home base, and it drives a wedge dividing the Moabite army. So this is strategic here. He's a good warrior. He knows what he's doing. It's brilliantly led. The whole thing is superbly executed, political assassination, and battle. And the author takes pains to show us how good this man is at his job. Now, why do we go into all that unpleasantness? Because part of the reason why we're, we're preaching out of the Old Testament is to help you see how much fascinating information is communicated in what are mostly very compressed stories. There's not a wasted word in any of the Old Testament stories. They're all intended to communicate something. You need to know how to read Hebrew narrative, and anyone in this room can do that if you're carefully looking for the details. Remember, these stories are written to be read slowly and deliberately, so you don't miss this stuff. Okay? And as impressive as Ahud's personal skills were as a warrior, we need to remember that his military victory was far less impressive than Othniel's. That's a point we need to make. This was explainable by human ingenuity and the skillfulness of a warrior. The author's clear focus is on this man's physical prowess and his brilliance as a military leader, not his attributes as a spiritual leader. That's at least partly why the author takes such pains to make us know his innate skills. Although God uses those abilities to liberate his people, this is not a story that causes you to praise God for his miraculous deliverance, like the story of Othniel is, if you know what's going on. In the case of Othniel, the author explicitly states that this victory was because, verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. It never says that about Ehud. Dan Block says this about the story of Ehud. The narrator's silence on the role of God in the assassination of Eglon is deafening. On the contrary, Ehud operates like a typical Canaanite of his time, cleverly, opportunistically, and violently, apparently for his own glory. The only mention of God in the Ehud story is a, of highly questionable sincerity. In verse 20, Ehud refers to God in the midst of this deception to set Eglon up for his murder. I have a message from God for you. That's not worship. <laughs> That's not a sign of allegiance. It's using God's name as a prop for a fatal deception. Ehud's other mention of God is in verse 28, where he's mustering the troops and says, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. 
it's really hard to see a whole lot of sincerity in this because very few ancient Near Eastern armies would have made war unless their commander was telling them that God is on our side. This was a standard war cry in the ancient Near East. And the reference to God probably was more about bolstering his own credibility to fight, get these men to fight against the Moabites. There's nothing else in the story that would compel us to believe that this was a sign of devotion from Ahud. Okay? That's, not where he's, that's not the picture he's drawn for us. Again, it's clear from verse 15 that God raised up Ahud to deliver the Israelites. Just in verse 9 it says that he raised up Othniel. Okay? God raised them both up. But we mustn't let the fact that God raised up Ehud cause us to believe that everything he did was authored by God. Okay? See, we can easily think that if God raises people up in the Bible to do something, that somehow baptizes everything they do especially if the story, the narrator doesn't rebuke them for any particular sin or bring that to light, okay? We never must make that assumption in Hebrew narrative because even in this story, if we did that, we would be guilty of God condoning evil, okay? Ahud clearly practiced multiple evils in the conquest of the Moabites, and that leads us to one of the truths that we bring from this story, and that is God frequently uses people in his service that are far from virtuous and are at times genuinely evil. He frequently uses people in his service that are far from virtuous and are at times genuinely evil. We mustn't be so impressed with Ahud's lethal skill sets that we minimize the evil that he does here. He practices deceit, treachery, and he makes a reference to God that clearly is to use to help him kill his victim. Ehud was God's choice as a judge, but that didn't mean he did things in a God-honoring way. The same can be said of any person God uses in the Bible. This is one reason why God goes out of his way to reveal even in the heroes like David, all of them have feet of clay. They're all sinners. The hero in every story in the Bible is not the person, it's God. Okay? That's why. So, we see this especially in, later in the Judges when we look at Samson. Samson is manifestly God's choice from before he was born, okay, if you read the story. And yet he's among the least admirable leaders in all the Bible. In the entire story of Samson that's filled with compromise and deceit and his glaring egomania, the author of Judges never inserts into that story anything like what Samson did displease the Lord. It's not there. Biblical authors of narrative rarely write that way. They tend to allow the reader to make his or her own judgments on the basis of the details that they choose to include in recounting those events. And the details he includes about Ehud point to much evil in him. Notice further as you compare these two men of these narratives, you see Othniel's story, where's the primary focus? It's on God. It was God's glorious victory as he rushed upon his servant and won this miraculous victory over this huge fighting force that could have been defeated only by divine intervention. In severe contrast, in Ehud's narrative, the primary focus is on Ehud. And the results that we are influenced to admire are not God, but the military prowess of Ehud. Do you get why he goes into the detail? He really is showing us something here. The dynamic of God using evil to accomplish his purpose can give some people a headache. 
it would be a whole lot less complicated if the Bible read like a 1940s Western movie. The good guys are always good and the bad guys are always bad. But that's not what the world is like, is it? Right? The Bible is, paints a very accurate picture that the, bi- that the world is a fairly complex reality sometimes. So we need to come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign over all the sin and confusion and somehow through them he accomplishes his purpose, but he doesn't participate in them. That's a high wire act that only God can pull off. Those who believe that God are only going to use people who are virtuous, they don't know much about their Bibles. Certainly God calls his servants to be of high character, okay? But he uses many wicked people as well. Now he doesn't condone their evil. It merely reflects that God is bigger than a person's character flaws, and he can use very flawed vessels to accomplish his will. And the author forces us to see this truth when he talks about this caricature of a king, Eglon, that according to verse 12, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against his people Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was the God of evil who strengthened this joke of a king, Eglon, to give him sufficient power to brutally oppress his idolatrous people. God uses evil all of the time for his purposes without participating in it. If he couldn't use evil for his purposes, then he would be a very impotent God because so much of this world is riddled with evil. Okay? God hates evil. He uses evil. He doesn't participate in evil. He's not frustrated by evil. By way of application for us, as we think about this story, what does it mean to me? We must never think that if a person has a glaring character flaw, God would never use that person. That's naive. Othniel was a virtuous, blameless judge. God used him. Ehud's methods were fleshly and wicked. God used him too. That may create some internal tension for us, but what it should do is cause us to be amazed that God can and does use evil and wickedness to accomplish what is ultimately going to be his good and his perfect will. That should be our response when we see this, to wonder at the wisdom and grace of God to use whatever is available to him to accomplish his ultimate purpose. God will never be limited. God will never be confined because he doesn't happen to have Jim Elliott or Charles Spurgeon or John Bunyan at his disposal to bring it to today. That should give us all hope that God can use us to do great things. See, we, we, don't, we don't have to know a certain amount of the Bible. We don't have to have slain all of our bad habits or have a perfect prayer life to be used by God. If that were the case... God would be doing very little in the world and very little in the church. And we need to stop believing the lies of Satan that tell us God could never use you for his glory. Are you kidding me? Do you know what your thought life is like? Are you kidding me? Do you know what you spend your time doing? Are you kidding me? Do you know that you're not a very good husband or wife or son or daughter? The lesson of the story is not that God's servants shouldn't be as holy as they can be. That's not the lesson. God can use a sharp knife, however, better than a dull one. So it's good to be holy. But God can cut down a forest with a dull knife. And at some point, even the most devout of us are a a dull knife. We've all been there. Okay? So trust God to do great things in you. Stop dealing with your inferiority complex and expect that God will use you. 
He delights to use people in their flaws because in the cracked vessel, we get to see the treasure inside. A second and final lessons that we can learn from these two deliverers come when you think about them in the context of the New Testament and the great deliverer in the Bible, who is Jesus Christ. Othniel was a great judge, Ehud, not so good a judge, but neither of their acts of deliverance is worth mentioning in the same breath as the deliverance Jesus won on a cross for us. When Othniel delivered his people, the book says they were back in bondage again in 40 years. Ehud's deliverance lasted 80 years. But after Ehud, Shamgar had to come again. They didn't last. Contrast that with Jesus. Jesus Christ is a great deliverer, and his deliverance lasts for all eternity. Ezekiel 37, 23 prophesies about what the people of God would look like that Jesus delivers. Notice the marked contrast between these people and the Jews in the book of Judges. Ezekiel says of those whom Jesus delivers, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. He's looking ahead to the people who come to Jesus. The blood of Jesus and the deliverance that he got for us at Calvary is far more lasting and far more powerful than any judge because Christ delivers us not from a human oppressor, but from the tyranny of sin and Satan. When Jesus came the first time, they expected him to take out Rome, and they were disappointed. What they didn't understand is Rome's never the problem. Babylon is never the problem. The problem is in here. The problem is our sin. Jesus came to take out the big enemy first. The cleanup operation, he'll take care of Rome or Babylon or whatever it is. That's the point. We have the biggest problem to solve, to be delivered from, our sin, death, and the enemy who's constantly there. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. We need deliverance from them. Those weapons, those, those evil forces are infinitely more formidable than Mesopotamia. So when we read of the deliverers of Israel, whether they be good or not so good, we need to thank God that we who are in Christ, if we're in Christ, have been given a deliverer that Hebrews 7.25 says is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The deliverers of Israel all died, and when they died, the oppressors came back in and oppressed Israel. But our deliverer lives. He lives in heaven, and he continues to pray for us. And his blood has not lost one ounce of his power to deliver people from sin and death. And if you're here today, and you don't have a personal relationship with God, what that means is you're under the oppression of sin and death. They're not visible, but they oppress you every day. They cause you to do things you don't want to do. They cause you to fear death. All of that is spiritual oppression. And Jesus came to take that away so that the fear of death and so that our sinful impulses don't have to run our lives, okay? So if you're not in relationship with Jesus, you're still under oppression, sin and death and the devil. But you can get out if you go to the great deliverer, Jesus Christ, and admit, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment forever. But I'm coming to you because I know you died to cleanse me of my sin and forgive me of all my unrighteousness, all those things that deserve eternal separation from you. 
And so I come to you to deliver me today, and by your grace, I will live as if you are my king instead of me. I've been king all of these years. It ain't working out so good. I want you to be king of my life. Save me. Deliver me. You do that, your life will change. You'll be a whole lot more like those people in the book of Hebrews than in these people who are constantly under oppression, even though that God sent judges for them. Will God give us the grace to see the greatness and power of God, not only to use cracked vessels for his service, but also to deliver all of us eternally from sin if we place our trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. God, it is a strange story, one that uh, we frankly would not necessarily know what to make of. Thank you that you don't do this just to make uh, a little bit more colorful story here, to break up some of the monotony. But God, you put all those details in because you want to teach us something through them. Father, we so easily look up to the Ahuds of this world, people with skill, people with uh, cleverness, people that can do things very well. And God, what we need to do is look up to people like Othniel who just trust in you, who look to you, and who do great things in your power. Father, I pray if there's anybody here who, who believes God cannot possibly use them because something happened 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago, Father, I pray, God, that you would just enable them to be relieved of that lie. And Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray you would show them, if they don't already know, that they're under significant oppression through the fear of death, through their own sin that bothers them, and from Satan who wants to destroy them. Father, enable them to see that and come running to you, Father, knowing that you sent your son Jesus to die for them so that they might be a son of God, free from oppression, living for you as their king. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 